Welcome to Now Playing's review of Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Huh? You guys ready to have some fun? Yeah! Yeah! All right. <laughs> Hosted by Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob. Hey, kids, they're here! <laughs> this podcast will contain detailed movie spoilers and harsh language. Damn, fuck, go to hell, ass. Listener discretion is advised. Bumpers are for kids. You know, what are you, two years old? You don't want the bumpers. Life doesn't give you bumpers. Today we're discussing Boyhood, starring Eller Coltrane, Patricia Arquette, Lorelai Linkletter, Ethan Hawke, directed by Richard Linkletter. This is Arnie, and are you guys ready to have some fun? Stuart in L.A.? And this is Jacob. And guys, I have these dreams where I'm just kissing Obama. (laughs) (laughs) You too? I thought it was just me. I don't think this is a surprise to anyone who's heard our Transformers retrospective. (laughs) (laughs) We have been accused of uh, liberal-leaning podcasters in the past, but we've been accused of a lot of things, like (laughs) foisting artsy-fartsy movies on people when they'd rather hear us talk about Transformers, and we're gonna do it again. Yeah, you'd think that they're almost really nostalgic for a year ago with Robocop Prime Directives. (laughs) (laughs) How quickly they forget how much corn and crappy movies we covered when we were doing the crap everyone said why can't you cover good movies when we tried to do something hey nominated for lots of academy awards including best picture we get pushed back on that as well i we can't win right we just gotta keep doing what we're doing and i think we have that said listeners mia culpa all those things you thought the before trilogy was we're here to talk about them tonight I think I know where you're going with that. Well, this is not just a unique project to cover for Now Playing. I think this is a pretty unique movie in the history of cinema. I can think of no fictional film that has ever tackled something like this before. Now, documentaries, yes. I don't know if you guys know the Up series. Yes, yeah. There is a British documentarian who every seven years checks in with this class of British kids. He started when they were seven, and every seven years, I think they're 56 now, we've seen people age on screen in reality. There was Hoop Dreams. We followed kids through five years of high school and the year beyond to see if they were going to make it in basketball. I feel like, yeah, documentaries do cover this kind of thing. But for a narrative, for a story, this is not a documentary. This is, well, I guess for lack of a better word, scripted. This is an original fictional work, obviously. This is not Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette in here. <laughs> yeah, to tell the listeners who may not know why you're making a big deal of this, Stuart, this movie was filmed over 12 years. The cast and crew would get together for one to two weeks every year from 2002 through 2013 and film part of this movie, which is just an insane thing to do. I mean, it's, first of all, risky. They couldn't even sign people to contracts because there's a federal law. You can't sign someone to a contract for more than seven years. So there was the risk. They did a Q&A on the Blu-ray. Come year 12, Patricia Arquette could have gone, yeah, this year I'm coming back for a million dollars and completely blown their budget or just had to deal without an actress who they filmed for 11 years. It's just a massive thing in scope and scale. And honestly, it's something I'd fantasized about. I'd sometimes just be like daydreaming about crazy projects. And one of them was, imagine if you filmed a life story where you just had the same people come back year after year 
Only Richard Linkletter is indie enough and devoted enough to do it, though. I'm telling you, Jesse and all those before movies, when he talked about his crazy story ideas, that was Linkletter. Like, this feels like a Linkletter thing to do now. I think I have more questions about the process of this film being made than the actual film itself. Yeah, let's get those out of the way, because I do feel like when you hear about this movie, that's what people want to talk about. It's amazing. I mean... Keep in mind, Linkletter really made it clear. The reason why you don't see projects like this coming up all the time, yeah, people have had these ideas before. How do you fund it? How do you get someone to give you money and say, you're not going to get a return on your investment for more than a decade? That just, in the world of independent filmmaking, is a bad deal. Nobody would do that. But IFC, Richard Linkletter had 20 years of indie filmmaking under his belt. And I guess they just felt like they could trust this guy to stay committed and do it. I actually think it was the Before series and watching those movies evolve that probably convinced them that they could trust this guy to stick with it for 12 years. But keep in mind, he started filming this before even before Sunset came out. Yeah, that's true. I think he might have had the idea, but you're right. It was a year before Before Sunset was filmed. Yeah, but their investment was minimal. They would only pay per year. It's not like he got the budget up front. They gave him 200000 a year, which in the world of movie making is chump change. That's nothing, yeah. And at the very least, they were getting something else out of it. They were getting the footage. They had to have the footage back every year before they'd put back the next 200000 in. So they were getting footage. They were getting something. But yeah, it's a crazy thing to think these people went to their bosses and said, over the span of the next 12 years, we're going to need over $2 million, and it might pay back. <laughs> was there a script 12 years ago, or was this something organic? Here, we're going to film a couple years of this kid, and here's kind of where the story's going, and, and did it change? Linkletter talked about this a lot on the Blu-ray bonus features, and what it was happening is he was a father. And he started seeing his children grow up and had this idea of wouldn't it be interesting to make a film about boyhood. And he had the basic plot beats in mind. When he approached Patricia Arquette at the beginning, he already knew she'd have a abusive husband who was an alcoholic and she'd leave him and that they'd be moving and all of this. He knew the basic plot beats and he tried to think back to his own childhood and the experiences he felt every boy had growing up and wanting to put those on film. That said, it was in year three that he decided what the end scene of the movie would be. Year two or three, he was a little fuzzy, but he didn't know how the movie would end when he started it. And he did collaborate with the people in general year after year. They would, especially as the children grew older, shape their characters more. But it was never a, okay, what are we going to do this year? He already knew the general outline. It just refined as it went on. They never saw pages. I did see some interviews with Patricia and Ethan and the kid, and there was no script pages that were handed to them. It was all in Linkletter's head. And the way Hawk described it, I kind of like this. He said that he knew the song, he didn't know the lyrics. The actors were encouraged to write their own words, but what was going to happen to them and the structure of the scenes, that all came from their director. And the most interesting thing is when you think about a project of this length, Linkletter had a secession plan in mind in case he died. Hawk was going to have to finish directing it so that they could <laughs> keep going. Wow. Yeah, I mean, death is something to really consider here. Not that it would have been common for any of these people to be taken out, but freak things happen. 
who knows, you're, you're healthy one year and then six years later, you're not. I mean, it could have been a very big reality that one of these major characters wasn't going to see 2013 and the final day of shooting. One of the characters didn't want to. Around the middle of the movie, Lorelai Linkletter was kind of tired of filming. She didn't want to wake up early enough for the shoot. <laughs> so she was acting like a real daughter. I wonder how she got cast, but she's better than Sofia Coppola. That's all I gotta say. But she asked her dad if the character could die of swine flu. <laughs> That must have been the year swine flu was popular. I really do feel like as we go through this, it's like, I got to go back in my memory. What was big that year to identify where we're at in this film? Yeah, that's the weird thing is he made a period piece in the time because all of this was filmed with the same actors. So when you see a Dragon Ball Z t-shirt, that's not retro. That was what was hip at that moment. But we're seeing it 12 years later. We're like, oh, yeah, I remember Dragon Ball Z. And that's everyone's in, right? This movie has two big universal selling points. Even though it is artsy and challenging as a story or non-story, everyone has a childhood and everyone lived through this. I mean, we all remember the advent of iPhones and YouTube and Obama and all these pop culture benchmarks that were coming along. Most of our listening audience is going to identify with this, and I think some of our younger listening audience is going to see themselves literally, they're going to be like, hey, I'm this age, or I was close to this age. They're going to see themselves projected in screen. It's almost like a home movie, really. Yeah, I feel like we got a little bit of criticism saying maybe millennials couldn't quite identify with Before Sunrise. I feel maybe the opposite's here. I'm struggling, okay, what song, what year did this song come out? I stopped listening to a lot of pop music as I got into college in the years that this film really got rolling, so it actually might benefit our younger listeners. The, the musical choices are a big signpost. They really helped me because I'm really into music, and so I don't know if I knew the exact year, but I knew when Britney Spears was king, yeah, I mean... I knew Britney Spears, yes, I got that one. Coldplay, Yellow, there were definite ones, but it is kind of an indie soundtrack. I mean, there are some pop songs on here, but I think it also mirrors Linkletter's taste. He doesn't go for anything too popular or probably too expensive to get the rights to. Yeah, he talked about it where it's not his tastes. He talked to the actors and tried to get their tastes. And because the two children apparently were not normal children, Coltrane was homeschooled and listened to unusual things and his own daughter was apparently into harpsichord music they hired children <laughs> to be consultants on what is popular i can relate to that i have imaginary children yes <laughs> when in doubt ask them if it's good but yeah you bring up something very interesting our lead character the one that's going to be walking us through 12 years and not only 12 years but the 12 steps of American educational system. He starts in first grade and ends in 12, which is for those that are not in America, that is our public education system in total, other than kindergarten. But this kid doesn't have that as a reference. He was homeschooled. So he's not bringing experience about what happened to him in classrooms to this character. He said, I think he did attend one or two years of public high school late. But for most of these years, this is not his experience. I don't think he was contributing too much about what he was learning in school. No, at times he said he wouldn't even know what grade he would be in were he in school like that. But I think that comes with finding parents who would agree to sign their son up for a 12-year program <laughs> like this. That's exactly right. As they were Linkletter fans and yeah, if they're up for an unconventional education, they're probably up for unconventional after-school extra credit. 
It's only three days every year. I mean, the commitment is not huge. A couple weeks. Weeks? Yeah, he said weeks. He said one to two weeks every year. Oh, well, with prep and all. I think they only filmed for three days, but sometimes longer, sometimes not. But Yeah. yeah, it's not a huge commitment for the actors, at least for the kids. But for the professional actors, I mean, Patricia Arquette was on television. She had to fly in. She had other things going on. She said she turned down movie offers because this took precedence. I can't imagine there were that many. I've actually looked up (laughs) Patricia Arquette's IMDb going, whatever happened to her? She won an Emmy. What are you talking about? She was medium. (laughs) Okay. I don't know. She looked like a large to me, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that joke isn't original, but I haven't heard it used. (laughs) But (laughs) during the medium programming what would happen is they just film her scenes on weekends so they'd fly her down friday night film saturday sunday fly her back and then fly her back the next weekend Mm. but yeah i wondered what happened to her apparently she spent 12 years here and on television but she couldn't have turned down big movie roles still i mean a working actress at their level this is a unexpected commitment you couldn't imagine too many actors would sign on to a project of low money to work for so long i mean it just who would do it i think you do it for the love of it i think that they trusted richard linkletter to make art and not just make a hit i don't think anyone had imaginings that they were going to get oscar nominations out of this but i think they wanted to see it it sounds like a cool idea it sounds like something we'd all want to see how it turns out my question is i agree it's a grand experiment would you need to would you really need this is what happens here so vastly different than if they just cast 10 different people and done a little bit of leaning one way or another in age. By the end of this movie, Coltrane looks totally different than at the beginning. You would not be able to tell that that's the same kid anyway. You know what? I had a different experience. To me, it seemed like a very natural age progression. And I mean, there's so many times where you just have a film where the actor who's 40, flashback, same actor, and we're supposed to pretend he's 20. It never works for me. Seeing this character over two hours and 45 minutes, I did see a mage. I saw him as the same person, which would be different than conventional film. Now, is that necessary for the storytelling? No, but to me, this is a science experiment. This is trying to do something different with film. So that's how I'm looking at it. My favorite example of that is when 40-year-old Madonna pretended she was a teenage girl in Evita. <laughs> that was great. But yes, you're absolutely right. I'm with Jacob on this. It's everything that it's the same person gradually progressing year by year. I mean, that's what we're watching for. There's not going to be a whole lot of plot. I mean, it's not what happens to these characters. It's watching them go through what we know happened to us. I mean, in some ways, it feels like looking in a mirror. I agree that's what made this movie interesting to me, was, wow, they filmed it over 12 years with the same people. It becomes a great curiosity, good or bad. It's certainly unique in that way. And if it was 10 different actors, it wouldn't have any of that. So yeah, that's why I mentioned before, I was really interested in seeing this film. It was only in our town for one week. It actually came back for the Oscars, but in its original run, it was here for one week. And that was the week I was watching and rewatching and re-rewatching Leprechaun Origins (laughs) for our (laughs) lovely, lovely donors. So I didn't get a chance to see this in theaters. I'm watching it for the first time for this review. This movie premiered about exactly a year ago, almost, at the Sundance Film Festival. I had been waiting for it. I think it was finally released in the middle of the summer. 
and it has remained my favorite movie of the year. I thought other things might surplant it, but no, I was passionate about seeing it, and I was really excited about seeing it again for this podcast. And I remember seeing the commercials, and to me, it sounded like a gimmick. Remember, I hadn't seen any of the before movies either. So I, I didn't know this is something Linklater did where he experimented with real aging with his actors and his characters. So I'm like, oh, that sounds like a neat idea. I didn't really feel like seeing it. After seeing the before trilogy, though, I was much more interested. So I'm glad I got this chance to finally watch Boyhood. We get Ethan Hawke, but I think we might get Jesse here, too. There's certainly with his preoccupations about how he wanted to be a better father. There seems to be some crossover here. I, I, it's, it's only strange to me that the blonde is not Julie Delpy. Maybe it just wouldn't work if she was French? Yeah, I don't think she could do a Texas accent. <laughs> well, I'm not sure there's much there to give to people that haven't seen it, Arnie, but why don't you go ahead and try? Give them the plot of Boyhood. The film follows the Evans family for 12 years, 2002 through 2013. The primary focus is on Mason Jr., played by Ilar Coltrane, a young boy with artistic ambitions, but we also follow his slightly older sister, Samantha, Lorelai Linkletter, the director's daughter, and their divorced parents, Mother Olivia, Patricia Arquette, and Father Mason Sr., played by Ethan Hawke. The movie really starts when Olivia moves her children to Houston so she can finish her degree. About the same time, Mason Sr. moves to the area after an extended time in Alaska. We watch from mostly the children's point of view as Olivia gets married to one of her professors, who then turns into an abusive alcoholic. So she leaves him and remarries an Iraq war veteran, who also turns into a mean drunk. You know, sometimes maybe it's you. Mason Sr. also remarries and has a new son of his own. Meanwhile, Mason and Samantha deal with their early relationships, Mason working as a dishwasher, shifting his focus from graffiti art to photography, the kids moving to different schools, and eventually going to college. The movie ends on Mason's first day of moving into his college dorm, making new friends at the university, and taking some shrooms as credits roll. Now, I mentioned when we covered the Before series that Linkletter is preoccupied with time. That's my primary interest as I'm watching this film, as we start with the image of a six-year-old boy looking at clouds in trouble at school because he's not turning in his homework has a creative mind in which he thinks putting rocks and pencil sharpeners will create arrowheads. He does not seem to have a whole lot of other friends. He does not seem to have a lot of attachments with other men. And I'm thinking, what are these 12 years going to be? Are we going to see someone different at the end of this? Or, you know, it's kind of like those psychological experiments. Are you who you were at birth, or how much does nurture play with it? That's what I'm really interested to see unfold here when we first meet Eller Coltrane's Mason. I will admit that this movie took me by surprise, because I expected it to play with time the way it did, but I expected it to have more of a storyline than it did. I expected that, like the before films, we have seen three insights into Celine and Jesse's relationship. Their first meeting, their reunion, and a massive fight. We've seen, like, the three most important things that have ever happened to them. So I kind of expected this to have a plot and to have a progression of logical story and character development like any scripted film. And so it really throws me for a loop that we have none of that here. Do we watch the character grow and progress? Yeah. Is there a necessary through line or anything that makes the fact that this is fictional matter? 
in a story way, not especially. Yeah, I think if you showed this to someone without, maybe someone that's never heard of Ethan Hawke, they'd probably think this was a documentary. Like, that's why I was wondering if there was even a script. It, it, to me, it just seems like, oh, let's film these little pieces and these little pieces, because I'm waiting for some kind of storyline, some kind of thesis, a film, a story, it has a thesis. What What is it getting to? This one, I could project things onto it, but yeah, Stuart, you say, is this about nature or nurture? Is this boy going to change? I guess that's what this is about. I'm not sure. It, it almost feels like a documentary to me and just, Here's a couple of days of a kid over the next 13 years. I agree completely, Jacob. This could be a clip show from Kate Plus 8. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> a little artsier than that. <laughs> I've never seen a clip from Kate Plus 8, but I will move on. You know, I've heard this complaint a lot, and I've heard it, this complaint from Richard Linkletter fans. I know people that like his other movies and walk out of this shrugging and going, I don't know, what was the big deal? I, I don't get it. I had an entirely different reaction. Well, I mean, come on, you guys said... The conversation sometimes got on your nerves in the before series. This is removed from that. We are now going to watch development in subtle cues. I feel like everything we see is very important. It was highly selected. I think that how important you think it is on his development is debatable. I mean, I think that's what we're going to talk about is what are the things that happen to him that give us the man that we have at the end. Stuart, I'll agree with you for the first 60 minutes of this film, that we see very important things happen that help shape the development of Mason. And Mason is the main character, but it's really the whole family who we're watching develop. This movie is only called Boyhood because of 12 Years a Slave. This movie was supposed to be called 12 Years, charting everyone's development, primarily Mason. Then 12 Years a Slave came out, and they're like, well, crap, we can't use that title. And because of the new title, we're focusing so much on Mason, as the movie does, but it would be a mistake to rule out Mason Sr., Olivia, and Samantha as part of this evolution. And we're watching them grow and change as much as we're watching Mason. And yeah, for the first hour, everything's important. After that, I disagree. Yeah, I, I think this is about a family, ultimately. That kind of took me by surprise. I thought it'd be super focused on Mason. And it kind of seems that way at the beginning. You know, he's the first person we see. He's daydreaming. Stuart, you said Linkletter tried to take things that anyone would recognize. Definitely when he's sitting there looking at a bra catalog. I, I remember doing that as a kid. That's like your first stage of pornography right there. Yeah, there are these moments, and I, I'm waiting to see where this kid is going or, or why these moments are important. I think it loses focus. By the end of this, I'm feeling like the way I did in Before Sunrise. As Mason gets older and he starts talking, he gets that pretentious attitude. We're all being turned into androids. I think, yes, Arnie, I like the first hour where it's just watching this kid grow up. Well, let's go year by year. Now, keep in mind, this movie is only supposed to be two hours. I think some of the problem is it ended up being two hours, 40 minutes. I think that's a longer sit for people. I think they feel that extra 40 minutes. Like a boulder on my chest. But Linkletter admitted that he needed more time to set up things here in year 2002. It's one of the longest segments. I think 2013 and 2002 are much longer than the other ones. It was supposed to be 10 minutes a year, two-hour movie. It ends up being a little bit longer than that because, yeah, we needed to see what was changing here. I mean, there's a big change that's happening in the first year, the jumping-off point, the leap into Act 2, if you want to try to apply Hollywood screenwriting rules to this, is that Mason is going to have to leave his childhood, whatever that is, behind 
to go to Houston. And I like the way we're introduced to this. I didn't believe the father was working in Alaska. Doesn't that just sound like the breakfast club, my girlfriend's in Niagara Falls? I thought the father was a deadbeat or something when we're told he's working in Alaska. That just sounded too fantastical to be real. Later we find out, no, he just went to Alaska for a job. I guess some people have to work there. But the first year, not a whole lot occurs in that first year, other than the introduction to those three characters, Samantha, Olivia, and Mason, and seeing how they interact, his boyhood home painting over his growth chart because they're selling the house to move to Houston. Yeah, I thought that was a real poignant moment. He, at first, he's told to paint over any of the marks so they could sell the house, and he's kind of just doing it lightly, and then what, Samantha does something to piss him off, and he's like, yeah, let's get the hell out of here. I, I grew up, I was the oldest of six children, I get sibling strife. That is very poignant to me, I understand that, and now you want to get out of that situation. I was the youngest, but I remember in early adolescence, leaving the home where I'd grown up, and my big thing was I didn't want them to take my wallpaper off the wall to sell the house, you know? That was like, you can't take this house completely away from me. Of course, they told me they wouldn't, and the moment I turned my back down, that <laughs> wallpaper went. But it was a poignant moment for me as well, because I could relate to that childhood of making something your own and then making it generic for the next people. Yeah, I've moved a lot when I was very young. Before I was your neighbor, so to speak, Arnie, I think I moved a total of like seven times. So I really related to this first segment. I'm devastated by it. Actually, one of the most painful moments in this movie comes very early in that, okay, the mom is like, I want to get to Houston before nightfall. She's worried about the drive. No one is considering how Mason is dealing with saying goodbye to his friend Tommy. And he just sees him for a second, waving from his bike as he disappears behind corn. Set to the soundtrack of Soak Up the Sun by Cheryl Crow, no less. This happy moment. And I'm like, this is it. This is the saddest thing. I relate to this. I relate my own dissociation with the idea that it was difficult to keep friends in this. This is such a huge mess up on Patricia Arquette's part. She doesn't know it. Like I said, she's just trying to get them to a place where she can go back to school and help her family. She thinks she's giving them stability. But what she's really teaching them is that personal relationships don't really matter that much. And so, consequentially, the only friend that he has doesn't even get a goodbye. And this will come back to haunt her. It's really, though, the second year. And I will say that during these early years, I had trouble telling when the years passed. The kids looked the same early on. Then they hit puberty and they changed drastically. And then look the same again, pretty much. Yeah, I didn't even realize until you guys stated it that this was filmed every year. I just thought, okay, here's a couple segments, and then we'll skip forward a couple of years. Yeah, later on when he gets to high school, you could tell. But man, yeah, early on here, I did not realize every year was getting filmed. Oh, I love the transitions in this. I love the way that, to me, there was only one transition I couldn't tell on first watch. But no, they get to grandma's house. The whole idea is they're going to live off her mom while she goes back to school, pull in, and then we see Mason running out to try and catch the school bus. It's a new year. I mean, I get it. He looks differently, and he's in a different house. I mean, there's changes that have happened. I felt like they were stark changes. I felt like it's abrupt, but we know that a year has passed, or at least some time has passed. Yeah, but I never knew if it was a day, a year, or a week. You know, I think that it's intentionally there to make the audience work. And I'm not opposed to films that make the audience work. 
but sometimes I didn't realize a year had passed until we were five minutes into the new year. Well, part of it helped that I knew the press material that it was going to go first grade, second grade, third grade, so on. This is as much a survey of our public education system as it is of boyhood. I mean, we're going to really have to think about how much education helped this kid. But I knew that every time it jumped, we would be in a different year. And I think that there are things that are there. I feel like every year I see something that could only be happening at that time. Case in point, 2003, they're meeting their dad for the first time. He's going to take them bowling. Fallujah is on the television set. I mean, come on, that's April 2003. Yeah, I really feel they keyed into a lot of the politics here. You get Ethan Hawke going on about a rant about George W. Bush and getting into the war and all that. Yeah, there are some key indicators. I feel like when it's politics, things in the news, I was able to place the year when he relied more on the the music. I had a tougher time. Yeah, to me, it's all early 2000s anymore. I do not remember the differentiation of the years pre-2005 as to what happened when without Wiki. And again, I don't think the children changed that much early on, especially this first and second year. So it's a little bit harder for me to tell. But I do like Ethan Hawke coming back. I wasn't sure because he was this mystery dad in Alaska if he was going to be this total deadbeat dad I thought he would be a negative presence on the children's lives. But no, that's not at all what he is. You mentioned Jesse from the Before Trilogy, and that's what he is, is. He wants to be a good dad, even though he may only be there on weekends and things. He moved back from Alaska. He could have moved anywhere. He moved to be with his kids. And throughout this film, we're going to see him taking the effort, taking the time. Even if the kids move again, he'll drive to wherever they go so that he can spend time with them. You know what? It was several years before I trusted him, though. I do feel like he's trying awfully hard. He's trying too hard on this first meeting. You know, he's got the gifts. He's so animated. He's got the cool car. He's promising them anything. When he's telling the kid, I'm not going to put on the bumpers and life doesn't give you bumpers, to me that felt mean. It didn't feel like, oh, I'm going to teach this kid values. It felt like this guy is not listening to his kid. He is just trying to be light and... I felt like it was a couple years. I know when I, it was about 2006, or we'll get there in the time frame, but it was when there's another dad to compete that I really realized what I could appreciate about Mason Sr. Yeah, I'm really focusing on how is he shaping Mason? And yeah, there's that scene in the bowling alley where he won't put down the bumpers. And then right after that, he goes to the kids' homes. And I feel like he has that moment with Mason where Mason's like, oh, I got these arrowheads and I have these snake vertebrae. And then Samantha, that bratty kid sister, comes in and is like, oh, I'm playing this sport and that sport. It really feels like the dad's more interested. I don't know. Maybe that's the stereotype that the male, the dad is into sports. And so it feels like his attention's being pulled away and he's not as interested in his weird boy that's collecting snake vertebrae. I got that impression from everyone because the scene started with their grandmother, who's just fawning over Samantha and her straight A's while Mason's sitting there playing his Game Boy. And... She's not into the grandson. And then Mason is really trying to bond with his father over the feather and the arrowheads. And then Samantha comes in and takes that away. I thought that would be a more prominent theme that Mason was pushed to the background. I think it plays out in certain ways. I don't think that it's as big as these scenes made it feel it would become. Well, I don't know that anything is made prominent in this movie. This is a very, very subtle movie. But yeah, I think we can look at this as a big reason why Mason is aloof. I mean, he just doesn't get the same amount of attention. Samantha, 
Yeah, she's bratty, but really the problem is she's good at everything. Everything she does, from basketball to boys to grades to even firing a gun, she's really good at. She's better than Mason. And so it is very hard to give him the same level of attention. She just earns more. But I do think here in 2003, what Mason Sr. is really hoping, yes, he wants to get back in his kids' good graces and be a part of his life. I also think he wants to get back in Olivia's life. I think that his real agenda is to convince Patricia Arquette that he's now ready to be the dad he wasn't when he ran off to Alaska. Yeah, I thought that would be a major plot point before I realized there wasn't much of a plot. But yeah, I thought, okay, there's the story, you know, he's going to try to get back with the mom. Here's how he's influencing his kid. But that doesn't seem to go anywhere, really. I think it's because we just finished watching the Before Trilogy, though, where I've seen him as this devoted, in-love character who does crazy things for his romance that, yeah, I thought that would play a bigger part. But really, no, we see at the beginning, I can't decide, like you, Stuart, if he's smarmy or if he's charming. When they go outside and he tries to calm her down and be like, well, they ate French fries. I just can't decide which way it's going to go. But it's in that same year that we are introduced to the person who will be father number two, her professor. And as a former college professor, shame on you, sir. You don't sleep with your students. That is a bad ethic. (laughs) She is older, though. Yeah, but I did get a slimy feeling. Any professor that's going to go after the students, not a good sign. Usually you sleep with your TA, right? Never the students. (laughs) That's what I usually observe. It's like you wait until they're like at a slightly different level, but still too young for you. Yeah, you know, I get it. Olivia is looking to better herself. She is looking for someone that she thinks is noble, that can help her get to the next step. Of course, she's going to fall for a teacher this time instead of a deadbeat dad that's been doing nothing for 18 months in Alaska. I mean, I don't think that Mason has much of a shot with her, whereas this guy, at least in 2003... Looks really good. Looks like he can teach her a lot and give her financial stability to boot. Yeah, he does seem like he'd be a good guy. I mean, college professors, by and large, are. (laughs) Says the former college professor. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not very long, because we got to jump through 12 years, that we start seeing signs that he isn't. They come back from their honeymoon in Paris, and he's already kind of an asshole, both to his biological son and Mason. I mean, I will say, for as subtle as this movie is, it might be flatlining. I do like some of its real subtleness here when it's revealing character, like this stepfather. You know, there's one point where he's like, oh, I gotta buy some alcohol in case we have guests over, and the son's like, we never have guests over, and we see him secretly drinking, and we're gonna see that problem progress i I like that it's not so much like a lifetime movie it kind of goes that direction but you felt that was subtle i didn't think there was any in fact that was what i was thinking of as the opposite of subtle is when he's hiding vodka behind the tide detergent in a movie like this that is high drama in fact the biggest dramatic moment happens a few years later when that's discovered but i think everything we're shown matters i think every little bit has some significance Some of these are more familiar things than others. I mean, some of it is just girls talk about sex and boys talk about the latest Star Wars movie. I thought you guys would appreciate that. You had to know it was 2005. But I don't think everything mattered. The Harry Potter thing, I noticed that later on Harry Potter's still there, but 
that doesn't matter. That's trying to be of the moment. Yeah, it was just there to place the year. I'm like, okay, what's going to happen at this Harry Potter? At first, I thought it was like Halloween, but then I'm like, oh, no, everyone's a wizard. So this is like a Midnight Madness cell for Harry Potter books. There's no point to that. I don't know. I don't feel like Mason being a big-time reader or not a big-time reader plays any part. I think this does have added significance in context. Yeah, it was really exciting to get a book in 2005, and in 2010, it's really exciting to watch Lady Gaga on your iPhone. I think that this is chronicling not only a boyhood, but a changing of times. I'm watching technology change the way people consume entertainment. I gotta say, as an uncle to children about Mason's age, I think your barometer's a little off, because even back then, kids weren't reading. They were playing video games, watching movies, watching Barney, what have you. The big thing about Harry Potter is it made everybody read Harry Potter. No, I think this was there to say, look, Mason's like every other kid, and this is the year this is happening, but in the context of this movie, what it is is what Linkletter said. He's trying to grab the moments that everybody could relate to, and most people are aware of the Harry Potter phenomenon. And so whether you were a child or a parent of a child at that time, this is something you may have gone through. It is irrelevant to the character arc of Mason. You just answered my whole point, which is that, yes, kids used to read. This Harry Potter had, that was his magic power. It was he got kids to read. And now that's not happening the same way. I think that he is documenting a change, a millennial change, and it's subtextual. So therefore, it's not driving a plot forward. It's not directly impacting this kid's life. But I don't think it's inconsequential. I think it's powerful that it's here in the context of what he's involved in later. I'll give you this, Stuart, because I know what comes at the end of this film. I know how Mason ends up feeling about technology, that they're becoming dehumanized. Yes, maybe if I knew that beforehand, or maybe if I go back and watch this again, I, I will have another layer, another reading of this film about technology and how we interact with it. But I don't think that's set up, and since we don't get that development from Mason until the end of the film, it's hard to grasp what these moments mean as you're watching them. More than not set up, not intended. The key about any deconstructionist view of art is that you may be projecting things on it that weren't intended. You can't tell me when that was filmed in 2004 that Linkletter decided that at the end of it, Mason would be deciding technology is dehumanizing them all and that's why he must be reading paperback books now. No, it's at the time Harry Potter was big, they filmed it, at the end this. So when we go back and we start looking at it retrospectively, we can insert meaning where none may have been intended. Yeah, I don't know why that's a criticism for you. That's exactly the point. I prefer artists to have intent instead of just slopping through and then having us make up stuff and go, genius! That's the criticism. Well, I think we've always had a disagreement about that. I think that art is for everyone, and it is for everyone to decide what it means. Yeah, I think people can decide what they mean, but I think the director also, or the artist, has to have a point of view that they're coming from, or else is it just all happenstance? Yeah, I went and saw an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art that were literally chairs, just regular old chairs, and they were calling that art. I prefer an artist who's trying to make a statement instead of an audience that's going to create a statement that makes the art part of the audience instead of the artist's creation. You could take Leprechaun Origins and no, deconstruct it to the point of saying it's high art when that was not <laughs> the intent behind it, and I think that's what's going on here. We did do that, Arnie, and the donors got it. 
<laughs> I don't think any of us called it high art. I don't think we made that argument. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I hear what you're saying, but I think some of this is just fundamental differences in directorial approach. I'm really responding to the way that Linkletter is assembling these moments. I actually think that they're passing without comment, without the conversation that you guys said sometimes got in the way of the before movies. But I feel like I still hear a voice. I feel like I hear a commentary in my ear as I watch these things. They're motifs. They pop up again and again. I mean, what's the significance that they have a neighborhood kid and he's obviously something's wrong, Tourette's or something, and they heckle him? Well, later they're going to see a crazy guy in a booth and he's going to see himself in that. Does that mean anything? Is, is that significant? It's for the viewer to decide. But I see elements return again and again and ask us to define their meaning. I like that approach. See, and what I'm liking in this first hour is the two parallel plots of the two dads, the good dad and the bad dad. This, to me, is good storytelling. We get to see Ethan Hawke become a better and better father, and we get to see the descent of that professor who seemed so nice in that introduction. It's going so fast, it's almost in montage. But we get to quickly see the subtlety of him hiding the liquor, and then later on when he comes in all belligerent, I'm having a drink. Anyone have a problem with that? Well, we know where it came from. I mean, we see the through line. We didn't need every frame in between to be spilled out. But that scene, to me, high point of the film is that dinner scene. Yeah, we're at 2007, and it's an incredible scene, incredible performance by that guy. I just thought that the way that he handled it, I mean, he turns to Mason and goes, you don't like me very much, do you? Well, I don't like me either. The way he delivered that, I had sympathy for the guy. As much as I hated him, I had sympathy for him in that moment. Yeah, because that is a line that could go really bad if you don't pull it off. Like, that is clobbered over the head. But yeah, he does pull that off. This is the dramatic high point. Like, this is where there's the tension of the film. There's actual conflict. It's scarier than any horror film we reviewed. When he throws that glass... I am having adrenaline, and I guess and the behind-the-scenes thing, it made it look like he didn't mean to hit it as close to Mason as he did, but it lands on his plate, and, like, glass is shattering everywhere. That's scary, and I have been in situations as an observer where abuse is a hair's breadth away, and I think that was taking me back to violent scenarios I've witnessed in my personal life where you're like, After throwing that glass, what's next? Is he going to beat up Mason? I thought the film could go that dark. Well, yeah, it it almost feels like it goes darker. The next moment, Olivia's gone, and the dad's rounding up their cell phones. I'm like, what is going on here? And like, he's trying to see who's talked to Olivia, if anyone's made contact with her, because he doesn't know where she is. And then he goes out looking for her with the kids in the car, and he's got to be drunk. He's swerving all over the place, driving erratically. I mean, there's, like, I feel concerned for these kids. Like, I feel like they're almost actually, like, real kids, and this is real life, and this is a documentary. Linklater is successful in pulling off that feeling for me. That's exactly right, is that we feel like we're kids as well, and that this guy is way out of control. We are hoping that Patricia Arquette has taken the cue. You know, we've watched her develop. She liked the guy at first. She obviously married the guy. The kids seemed to like her. It was all going well. And then she was spending a lot of time with her head in a book. You know, I felt like she didn't want to recognize. I think there was a turning point when the dad had Mason's hair sheared off and she didn't know about it. And she sided with her son. She said, yeah, I'd be mad too. We keep wondering, what is she going to do about it? It's such a triumph to know that she can walk away from this at this point. We're so on her side when she and her friend 
show up there to take the kids away. Although, another heart-wrenching goodbye for me. Yes. It's heartbreaking that the biological kids of the father, they're left behind, and there's that scene where they're like, what's going to happen to him? She's like, I don't know. I call Child Protective Services and the cops. It's it's up to them. I, we can't do anything. Yeah, that was... I expected them to come back, and yet, for this movie, it's perfect that they never are heard from again. I mean... I don't know why they didn't become MySpace friends or something like that. I mean, that would have been appropriate of the age, but... They might have gotten taken away. I mean, you never know. Yeah, true. The father could have. I mean, we did see a scene right after he'd beaten up Olivia. So we know it's not just he's mean drunk. He is violent. I'm, I didn't know if she would have the guts to leave him. This is a lot of projection going on, but I'm going to give this movie a compliment that you guys are going to call an insult. It's kind of like a Michael Bay film. I've seen this trope so many times that they don't need to tell me everything. I can already project everything that's going on in these characters from the all this other media I've seen. I think all of the movie works that way, and I don't think Michael Bay works that way too well, but I get what you're going for, that yes, they use shorthand. Both Michael Bay and Richard Linkletter in this movie are using shorthand to convey huge drama. Yes, it's all like Michael Bay with just less explosions. <laughs> and cleavage, less cleavage here. True. And we know the year, right? Because Funny or Die, Will Ferrell, the landlord clip, I mean, they still have a great way of inserting, when you least expect it, a benchmark to say, this is the year. They plant the flag. There are no inner titles on this movie. They never say 2005, 2006, but something will happen in each little passage that dates it, that gives it a carbon-based dating. We're pulling it out of the ground like archaeologists and going, nope, that happened this year. And I'm like, Funny or Die was around back then? That, that seems current to me. That was anachronistic that in 2007, 2008, they're showing Funny or Die, because I thought 2010 and up for that. That was confusing. Well, then you had to know when he's campaigning for Obama, you were in 2008. <laughs> yes. Come on. Yes. I didn't realize it was one per year when I was watching this. So I'm like, well, we're either in 2008 or 2012. I've got to try to figure <laughs> out which. But yeah, that was 2008. I And I did laugh when they stole the McCain sign. That's when I really knew. Oh, McCain. Having lived in Texas, I, I don't know what the point of trying to put Obama signs in your yard would be. But yeah, I, I don't know if it ever pays off, but it's telling something about the dad, at least. I mean, we got a rant earlier about George W. Bush. Now he's campaigning for Obama. I'm waiting, though, to see, is this affecting the son? Is this shaping him somehow? And I don't know if I ever get that. I get that this is a moment that this is important to Mason Sr., but what effect does it have on Mason Jr.? I would say at this point, what it affects me is that he really cares about the development of his son. He has stayed true. He In 2006, he took him to a baseball game, and I think that's where I really started to be like, okay, I like this guy. He explained that whales were magic and elves aren't real. I, I like <laughs> that scene. He was studying to be an insurance guy. We're starting to see him be responsible, and he's a constant presence. He's taking them camping. He's trying to talk about sex with his daughter in a very awkward way, particularly when one of his one-night stands comes walking up in the middle of it. Yes. <laughs> but I like him. That's what these scenes are doing. Is it, it reassures me that I like both these parents, even though they come from different places, and I can understand why they wouldn't get along as a couple. I get that individually, yes, they should be a part of Mason's life. Yeah, showing that Mason Sr.'s a big Democrat, I guess that's a counterpoint to Olivia, who makes the same mistake that her professor made that she ended up marrying. She ends up dating a military vet. One of her students, I took it. She invited her students for Thanksgiving dinner if they didn't have a place to go. He was a student. 
2009, they have moved to a new city. She has gotten her degree. She is teaching a class. And that's a triumphant moment. I just want to say, again, this movie has magically overpowering moments that seem like nothing. Like, all he's doing is walking into a classroom and she's teaching it. But the fact that she is now giving the speech on psychology, the roles are reversed. Instead of her sitting in the audience looking up at a guy and falling in love, now she's looking at her student and looking at a guy and falling in love. She's grown so much. Was it me or did she have kind of a Hillary Clinton look when she was teaching that class? Her hair was kind of short. She was in like the suit. I think that was a medium haircut, but uh, difficult to say. I never really watched medium. I didn't like the show, but I feel so happy that, yeah, she has done something. Again, my big thing about this movie is do people change? And here's a moment where I go, yes. She took control of her life. She got an education. She got herself married. And then when it went south, she knew enough to get her kids away from it. And now she's living on her own, running a job. I think it's great. I'm so happy for Patricia Arquette in this moment. I am too, but... By the same token, I'm waiting for the next plot. We had several years that followed the plot of the abusive alcoholic father. What's next? I think it's coming when they're playing with saw blades at a construction house yeah. and saying whores are coming. Yeah, I was excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, <laughs> there's going to be a massive injury. Come on! You knew those kids had no access to whores. I knew no such thing. And I didn't necessarily think the story was going to go risky business so much as I thought Mason might lose a finger or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah that definitely could have happened on the set. That, I was scared. <laughs> Talking about relating this to growing up, I mean, I remember... Being in a punk band and playing shows in houses in the middle of construction like this, like that is something from my teenage years that I do recall, like just hanging out. Never hung out with junior high kids, though, when I was in high school. But that tells you a lot about the characters, that who these kids are and, and what their stages in life. Like there are these little moments where I think they do capture just ordinary life almost perfectly. And I'm getting a little freaked out because some of these references, some of these signposts, I realize how close we are to present day here. I mean, Lady Gaga and Kings of Leon and all that, I'm like, oh, I feel like that just happened. Like, 2009. Yeah, Mason complains about a girl not liking Tropic Thunder and the Dark Knight. Yeah, yeah that took me back, because, I mean, that's like the early, early days of now playing, right? Iron Man came out that year. Exactly. Yeah, we're now, we're aging ourselves against this. I felt like I was doing this the whole movie. It sounds like you guys were doing less of it. I just had a hard time doing it in the early years. Yeah, me too. I don't have a great memory. I'm old. Yeah, after 2005, things like that did hit me. When they're talking about Dark Knight, I'm like, okay, 2008. And from that point on, I was pretty into it. And that was helping me trace the years that are going on here. But Jacob, you said it's like scenes out of real life. Yeah, almost too much. Because around this point in the movie, here's the analogy I put in my head. I feel like with the advent of the smartphone, people take too many pictures and record way too many videos. Every time I go to a concert, people are recording the concert. And I think to myself, when are they ever going to play this back? If they lived long enough to watch everything they recorded, then all they'd be doing for the rest of their life is watching what they've already done. And if you took all these camera phone videos people have taken over years and spliced them together... And sometimes they're recording important moments, sometimes they're recording funny moments, sometimes they're recording just to record, and you splice it together, 
That is the last hour and 40 of Boyhood. That sounds like a Linkletter movie, which is what we're reviewing. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if you would like some of his other films then, because I do feel like most of them, or at least most of the ones I really like, are kind of plotless, that they are about nuance, they are about the way that people think, philosophize, and how subtle changes can make big impacts here. I, I don't feel like a moment is wasted. I feel like this movie is very well edited. I like every scene that I'm seeing here, but I will give you this. All of it is banal. All of it are things that you would have seen and not thought movie-worthy or worthy of a dramatic storyline. But I think, to me, that's part of the brilliance of this, is that they've taken the banality of life and infused it with something that makes me reconnect to it. I'm searching and seeing myself in these moments, and I'm trying to, again, see how is Mason developing now that he's entering what I would call some of the worst years of your life, high school. Okay, discussing the beauty of the banal is the type of thing that I think that our listeners were fearing was coming with the link letter stuff, and that's what I was apologizing for. I get what you're saying, Stuart, and that sounds interesting in theory. Maybe my problem is I don't find Mason to be that interesting. Like, he has some interesting conflicts when he gets to high school and he gets into photography and this teacher confronts him. Hey, you, can you get out there and can you take your art and adapt it to like real life situations? And he goes to this football game to take pictures. We never see what the result of that is. Like, I feel like there's interesting moments, but Mason's not that interesting to me. He is so aloof, so inside himself. Like, I, I don't connect with him. I'll go a step further. Beyond not interesting, he becomes unlikable. I do not like who this kid grows into. I blame the actor as much as the character. Couldn't that just be all of us, though, in our teenage years? I do feel like that might have been some of it. No, it's not all of us. This kid's an artist. I mean, what's striking to me is that, yeah, this could have been a story about someone that grows up to be, you know, a football player or someone on the debate team or something like that. But he was a boy that could not do his schoolwork, was more interested in staring at clouds at six. And what I'm finding fascinating, what I like about this movie, is he's still doing that in high school. I think that it's a little bit too clean of a through line. I mean, one of the very first things we see Mason doing is graffiti. And then later on in the late aughts, he's now become this graffiti artist and he's doing his wall. And now he's becoming a photographer for his art. I think it's too clean. Most kids I knew, in fact, 100% of the kids I knew, careened from interest to interest. I'm going to be a spaceman. I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a movie maker. This kid, art. Straight line, beginning to end. Why photography? Why did he go from graffiti to photography? That might be something interesting. It's just like, not all art is the same. People get into drama because they actors have a certain type of personality. Some get into painting or the graphic arts because they're kind of loners, but they like to really get absorbed by that. Like, I wish I could have insight into why he's making the decisions he makes. To me, I guess I went to film school. I guess I'm really relating to this guy. I get it. <laughs> it's voyeurism. I mean, he does not feel socially integrated with other people. There's girls that like him. They come up and hit on him. He doesn't seem to take their lead. He doesn't seem to have any male friends at all. And I think that that's interesting when you consider his socialization at a young age. I mean, I think this is a sociological experiment. I mean, the mom is teaching it, but we're also seeing it in practice here. And I think that he is drawn to not only an art form that allows him to observe other people, but it's archaic. He's not taking digital photographs. I mean, he's made to later, but he's really developing old-time photographs. He is starting to push back 
against the way that the world is steering him. That is the manifesto of any artist in any era. And I think some of the, for our varying opinion, I'll at least speak for myself. Stuart, you've been able to watch this at least a couple of times. And I think if I went back and watched this, knowing where it's going, knowing what the journey is, I could start picking up on those things. And one viewing, for a film where not a lot of happens, I also do feel that, yeah, it is dense. There are subtleties there. Maybe not the, like the ones where hiding the drink behind the laundry bottle. But there are these little moments that if I sat down and watched this again and again and really got into it, I might start connecting. So I'm not going to totally discount it. I'm saying on one viewing, sitting there and watching it, I am wondering why it's going. I'm not connecting with this character. He's uninteresting to me. And I want to be, I want to go with him on this journey of boyhood. And I'm just kind of bored once he gets into his teenage years. I just am frustrated because this isn't a documentary. And if this was a documentary, I'd give it all of this. But this is a scripted film. They may not have had pages when they started the whole thing, but he had a story, and they did have pages. Only one scene in this whole movie is improv. Everything else was written by Linkletter and words put in their mouth. And to me, doing it this way is poorly written because I took writing classes, and I realized that their rules are meant to be broken. But the general thing, whether it was a screenplay or a novel, I was taught you should be telling about the most important event in the person's life. Because if you want to engage an audience, it needs to be important and that important to the characters, the most important thing that's happening. You can't tell me that Patricia Arquette telling a handyman about some sewage pipe is the most important is the most important thing in the handyman's life we later find out but it wasn't the most important thing in our characters lives a scene so great i almost cry every time i see it by the way when ernesto comes back i mean to me that is so profound to think that not only do we have influence on our families and the people we know and we try to influence them but we have impact on lives that we never even think about patricia Arquette has no idea when she tells him you're smart, you should go to college, that she's doing anything. She's just glad that she's saving some money on a foreclosed house that she bought with Jim. But it's going to come back years later that, wow, this really meant something to somebody else. I found that incredibly powerful. Again, an amazing scene. And what's so weird to me is that it falls flat. Like, Patricia Arquette just doesn't seem that impressed. She's like, oh, that's great. I thought that would be a bigger moment once it's revealed. She doesn't remember. She doesn't remember any of this. We remember because we saw that moment, but to her, it was just something that happened while she was in the middle of something else. She doesn't know who this guy is. She just takes the free meal. But to me, what you guys seem to be attacking the movie for is that it doesn't seem to have a focus in the second half because it's not a domestic drama about getting away from a drunk. Well, that is actually happening. It's just not as dramatic this time. She got married again, and guess what? He's still the same guy she's been gravitating towards. <laughs> yeah, which I, okay, I get what you're saying. Uh, you, you fall for certain types and you keep going after them. I also just kind of rolled my eyes that, oh, she's with another drunk, another asshole too, the stepson. Like, I, I'm lucky. I do consider myself lucky. My parents never separated. They had a pretty good marriage. There wasn't any abuse, anything like that. So watching someone go from husband to husband to husband and they all end up being the same is somewhat foreign to me, but it seems more lifetime than real life. Yeah, and this guy was so unimportant, we never even see the separation. We saw it the first time when she leaves the guy. This time, I'm honestly left to wonder, did the actor just not come back the next year? And we're like, <laughs> well, shit. No! That's a great edit. I can't believe you're digging him. This movie is a great edit. He has a fight with that kid saying, I'm the one that's here. I'm your dad. You're going to do what I say. Cut. He's not there. I mean, to me, that's a joke. To me, that's like, ha ha. 
again, I think every single bit we're shown is important, but I think that requires that you're invested in these characters. I have been. I've been following them. They feel like extended family to me. And I guess, again, I'm copying to the fact that I'm relating to the central character as an antisocial aspiring artist. That's something I see in myself as a youth. So I'm having no trouble keeping my attention to all these little details. To me, this is riveting stuff, even though, yeah, on the surface, I guess it's trivial. Your responses and how personal this is and how much it mirrors your own childhood is helping me understand this film's Rotten Tomatoes score. With all critics, movie critics, people that have invested their life in film. Yes. Relating with Mason Jr. Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right that, yes, someone that has been drawn to the film arts probably has a similar childhood. It would be interesting to know. What if Linkletter had chosen a child that wasn't going to be an artist? He said he picked Eller because he came from artistic parents and he didn't have this structured childhood. And so he figured that that was going to fit the character that he wanted to portray on screen. But yeah, what if he did go with a kid that was really good at baseball? And yeah, as we watch him, he actually has a shot at going pro. I mean, it would be an entirely different movie. It would be an entirely different boyhood. I actually think if it were called Girlhood and we followed his sister, we would have that movie. She's the accomplisher. <laughs> this guy can't relate. She's the one that's talented. Or we could tap into the banality of real life. What if it's someone like their dad who grows up to sell insurance? Like, I, I do find it interesting that someone that's with Mason Sr., you know, the big Obama supporter against the war, does he become born again later on? Like, we see this birthday party. Mason Jr. gets a Bible from his grandparents. He gets this suit from his dad. They're going to church. They're going to be baptizing the baby. I was wondering, is this with Mason Sr., is this his change? That is, he's finding another relationship. Maybe he's more stable this time. We don't know what happened with Olivia. Is he becoming more religious? Is he becoming more conservative because he, he has a family and a wife again, and he wants to really take care of him this time? I read it as he wasn't as into it, but his wife was, and he's into making his wife happy, which he wasn't with his previous marriage. It really does come at the end. A lot of things, to me, come into focus at the end. But in the last year, when Mason is hanging out with his dad at a bar, watching a band warm up, I mean, he says, I've finally become the square that your mother always wanted me to be, and that it's timing. That if he had this together back then, if he hadn't run off to Alaska to try and find himself, but studied the books and tried to be an in insurance, it would have been a much more stable family unit to begin with. I mean, that seems to be what's so sad about these two, is that she probably would have loved that guy. I think that she kept trying to find a Mason Sr. that was also ambitious, and it just ended up blowing up in her face all this time. But I think they could have made it work if he could have found his drive earlier. And that's why you always see Mason Sr. telling Mason Jr., know what you want. Be a man that knows what you want. Get a job. Here's a suit for your birthday. He's pushing him to be what he wishes he was. He wishes someone had done that to him in his childhood. The biggest slap to saying, like, grow up and don't be this artist, Mason Sr. sells his hot rod that he had promised to Mason Jr. when he turned 16 and gives him a mixed CD of, like, the Beatles solo stuff. Like, I couldn't think of a worse gift than solo Beatles music. Yeah, that felt like a father who was disconnected from his son. That sounded like a gift the father would have liked to get instead of 
a gift that the son would want to receive. It is a little bit of that, but I also think music is a part of the way that they bond. I mean, we do see them singing a song he wrote together early on. This guy is an aspiring musician. I mean, he's in 2006, he's hanging out with this guy named Jimmy. It's like, who is this guy? So it looks like some bum. Well, Jimmy's going to stay in the music scene. We'll see him at the end. He's still in the band, and look at the expression on Ethan Hawke's face when he's in the green room. He wishes he was down there. He realizes what he sold when he got the minivan, when he got the wife, when he got the kid, and all of that. Yeah, he's more responsible. He's finally got it together, but there is a part of him that wishes that he had kept at it and been the renegade that he started out as. I don't know. To me, that scene had the most important line of this film because it answered the question I was asking. At one point, Mason turns to his dad and goes, what's the point of all this? And the dad goes, I don't know. Perhaps that's what the financial backers kept asking Linklater. spent 12 <laughs> years doing this. No, they never actually saw a frame of footage. They were not allowed. Somehow, he was getting all of this money without having to show them any results. Now, keep in mind, he was editing it every year. He would have the film brick by brick, putting it together. I had read he had to give them the edited footage each year. No, that is what, different than what he said in other material. I don't know what you read or, or saw, but I know that that has been disputed in other places. Well, truthfully, I know he wrote a book about this, and I honestly believe the making of the film and the story of the making of the film is perhaps more interesting than the actual product of the film. Well, I'm hearing that a lot from you guys. I do not agree with that. But before we go, before it sounds like we want to wrap up here, can we talk about the love story, first love? I mean, it is pretty important that we have seen Mason flounder for much of his childhood Interested at girls, but always removed. The artist, apart. He'd rather take a picture of them than be their friend. But he finally does, I mean, he walks right up to Sheena at a kegger, and they date for two years, about the same length of time that his mom has a boyfriend. He dates this, uh, I don't know, is she an artist too? I'm, I'm not exactly sure. She's cute. I guess that's the big attraction, right? No, she's not an artist. I, I get from the breakup later on and when he's talking to his dad about it that, no, she she had different interests, that she wasn't into the art, that that's something she kind of put up with with him. Yeah, that's true. She did hate the pictures of her. I didn't know whether that was puberty or just she didn't get it, but you're right. Yes. She didn't love him because he was an artist. That is true. I did like the breakup. I don't even know what this breakup was about. Like, she was going to prom with someone else or something. It, it seemed very high schooly to me, where, like, people break up. You have no idea why. It, it's these weird, complex drama stories that only teenagers could understand or care about. Again, that breakup did feel like it was capturing something from real life. But was she the only girlfriend? Was she the one in the back of the station wagon on his 15th birthday? Were they together for years? Oh, that's true. Good point. Good point. Yeah, he had been getting some. Yes, that is true. He did make out with somebody. Good point. I get the sense because we're focusing on her that this is the first important girlfriend. But you're right. He may have already lost his virginity. Yeah, this one was the one where the breakup hurts him because she cheats on him. And it seemed like they might even go to college together. They were visiting college together. It was a very sweet scene. They're caught in bed together by his sister's roommate, which is a very fun scene. The movie has moments that would be good, but... A lot of them. <laughs> I guess that's what we're debating. In the first hour, a lot of them, yes. <laughs> but when they break up, I did think that scene was appropriately painful it would have been more so if this was a movie where we'd had more than just that one college visit to 
become invested in the relationship. And I think, honestly, L.R. Coltrane has been acting for 12 years. He gets worse, right? Yeah, he has obviously not decided to study the craft in his home school. He has not gotten any other credits. I mean, it's not like this was taking all of his time this time. He, If he was an accomplished actor, he could have done more. If he was a good actor, he would have done more. He gets worse. And that hurts my investment when they're breaking up, is that I don't like Mason. I don't like the actor who's playing Mason. And so the fact that he's getting dumped and cheated on, I think the acting is pretty naturalistic across the board, including from the professional actors. I don't feel like Patricia Arquette is really acting with a capital A. Everyone is trying to do it without much work at all. You know what I mean? Like, to me, it's a flow of this movie. It's understated. But to me, it's not bad because he's not really pushing the emotions. I'm just not able to connect with this character as much in his adolescence, and it's, I believe, because of what he's playing to the camera versus what he did as a child, and this is the problem. How many child actors grow up to be adult ones? The fact that we'll name the exceptions prove that most don't stay very good, and I think that's the case of Alar. That does not prove anything. That Luck has a lot to do with why anyone becomes an actor. It all depends on what happens to you during puberty. A lot of cute kids go ugly, like Mm -hmm. with this actor here. Yes, and he doesn't help himself by gauging his ear and everything (laughs) i do feel like when he's got that goatee like he really is tapping into ethan hawk and like looking like his actual offspring yeah that is true yeah i think you guys are just out of touch here i think that if you would ask other girls of his age they'd say he's pretty hot he's pretty rock star i will say when i saw his interviews and all he had like a nose ring and I mean, he has a homeschool cool to him that is not common. I think that that artsy thing can work for him. It works for the character. I don't see what you're seeing here. But then again, we had different childhoods. And I think that may be a big reason why I'm connecting and you're not. Yeah, I'm certainly not connecting with this character when he has his big quote unquote touching moments with that photo teacher that you guys talked about. And then is later on his boss where he's working at a restaurant as a dishwasher. I was so confused when the boss showed up at the graduation. I was trying to remember why he was there. Yeah, that's so great. You guys are like, these are brilliant moments. Don't you have those from your life where like there's this confluence of people that should never be in the same room? Like I have very segmented friends. Like I don't mix and match. And like all of a sudden there's these weird moments in your life where they all come together, and it's surreal. It's like, yeah, a a Picasso painting that all of a sudden the woman that took us in when we were fleeing the abusive drunk dad and her children are standing next to my boss at the restaurant, standing next to my dad and his brother who we've never seen before. Like, to me, this is just a magical moment. The grandmother we haven't seen in seven years. That's exactly what graduation feels like. Yeah, I guess I just never had touching conversations with my boss nor would i have invited my boss i did work as a janitor and a dishwasher in high school and i invited neither of those managers to my graduation i don't think he was invited the fact that he's offering him a job anytime is embarrassing for him it's a moment of comedy this is not supposed to bring tears to our eyes it makes him look like a really strange guy Am I the only one who thought he might be hitting on Mason? (laughs) Nope, I thought that too. Okay. Well, I did, except then he asked about, is that your mom? I felt like he was looking (laughs) for something. And so were other people. I love that some of the students from the mom's class are like, also like, so you don't have a girlfriend anymore. Do you need a ride to college? I was like, whoa, it's getting weird in here. 
There's a lot to observe here. It's sounding like you guys at this point were really tuned out, checking the watch more than maybe looking at these details. I don't know. I'm loving every moment. I'm proud to say I never checked the time, despite how much I really wanted to, but I was feeling it. I didn't need to. I could just tell it felt like I was going through 12 years with him in real time. And I think that's okay to a point, right? This should feel long. Epics do feel long. There is no such thing as a 90-minute epic. This needed to have the weight of time passage. It's about time. So the fact that it's demanding some time, I think is fine. Could some of this be cut? Was it too long? Only individuals can say. I can say to me, there feels like there's no fat on this, particularly because of the way that it's edited. If I didn't feel like this thing was edited as smartly as it was, if they didn't buttress the moments together in the way that let me know that they were thinking about them, then I would say, yeah, this nothing's happening here. But to me, I feel like there's things to observe and comment on the whole time. And to me, there's something that really comes home here in the last minutes of the movie when, I mean, remember that terrible goodbye to Tommy? Back at the start of this movie where the mom wasn't thinking about what the kid needed. And then again, the terrible goodbye between their step-siblings that they never saw again. It karmically comes right back at her. She looks like she's living the life that she had 12 years ago. And her kids are leaving her. And he's not even tearing up. He's like, yeah, I'm leaving. Bye. Yeah, I thought there would be more. I I thought that was a great line from Patricia Arquette where everyone's leaving and she's just, everything's empty and everything's gone. And I guess she's realizing her age now. I thought there would be more. Is that what Mason Jr. is going to think when he hits 40? You know, he's lived this life as an artist. Is he going to get past that? Or is this a rut that you keep going at that every person goes through? Greatness is hard to achieve and you have great dreams and you end up marrying a couple abusive guys and being a college professor. This scene did bring me back because I've been kind of checked out of this movie for probably an hour, hour and a half. And this scene, I was able to relate to Patricia Arquette's statement because you mark your life in certain ways. I know I have, you know, you mark it with, I was going to college. I was going to grad school. I was married at this point, but there reaches a point and I don't have children. So I reached to this quicker than she did where there's no more milestones. You are now living your life and your next milestone is your headstone. So that related to me, and I really felt for her, And but I didn't blame Mason because he's going to college. I remember what that felt like, too. I kind of felt bad that Patricia Arquette was making it all about her, which is what she's always done. I mean, she didn't care when he didn't say goodbye to her friends, and now she only cares about herself again. Yeah, I'm not saying she deserves this. I'm just saying it's funny how life has a way of working out, that if you made a lot of edits to this movie, it was a triumphant story of a woman who came from nothing and became a successful woman. But truly, when you look at the rest of the life, she always struggled with money. She always struggled with men. And at the end of it, is she any better off than she was at the beginning? I feel her pain here. I mean, it's got to be hard. Of course, the kid just thinks she's over-dramatizing. He's seen her cry before. You're jumping ahead 40 years. You're not going to die next. He doesn't understand what she's talking about. She has no more aspirations. He's got college ahead of him. He's on the road in the next scene. We don't look back at her. And yeah, we get this whole, no, I thought this was the end. He's going to drive off to college. No, we're going to see him his first day, meeting his roommate. I feel like it almost goes on. I I get there's some, the moment's always right now. We're going to get this big moment. I almost wish it would have ended with him just driving off to college. That is his boyhood, the next step. 
is the next step manhood i don't know but i i feel like it went on a scene too long i completely agree it's a scene that i understand from the bonus material this is what Linkletter knew from year two or three would be the end and having that conversation. And it just drives home an extremely banal point. It reduces the entire concept of this movie to something that we've just heard so many times. Life is what happens while you're making other plans. I don't know. I saw it differently. I mean, I think it's significant that one, he's in Big Bend, which the reason why Linkletter knew he would end the movie here is because by the third year, Ethan Hawke had told his kids, hey, don't you remember me when I was with your mom? We would go camping and Big Ben. And Samantha was like, no, I just remember the fights. But he is returning to where Ethan Hawke was still with Olivia, with Patricia Arquette. And now all of a sudden, he's partnered with this woman who seems to be really into him. And she likes a retro, and she's an artist, but a dancer. She likes retro tap, just like he likes retro photography. There seems to be like there could be a lot of connections, or will this just be another girl in passing here? I mean, the fact that he's high and that they could hook up, he could make the same mistakes that his parents did. He could be right on that precipice of repeating everything we watched Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette do. As long as I don't have to watch it. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Boyhood? Jacob. I'll be honest, I think... This movie may be more gimmick than movie. It's a great gimmick. This spanning over these 12 years with all these actors, seeing them age in real life. But I'm not going to discount it as that. I, I'm not going to discount it as just a gimmick. I, I think that is the main draw. I, that's all I heard anyone talk about this film was, it wasn't about the plot. It wasn't about the acting and the story. It was about, man, they filmed this over 12 years and all the same actors and you see them get older. But I don't know, Arnie, maybe I feel a little bit like you when you watch 2001. Is this a film? I, I feel like here's a fictional documentary. Like, is that something to aspire to? Filming something so real that it seems real and banal? Maybe. But I think to Stuart, your point, and I had this experience. I think we all had this experience. We were watching this. There were certain things that spoke to us and, and made us reflect on growing up. And that, that's something we've all felt as we watched the before series. We see ourselves get older and relate to these people at different ages. And I think we saw that with Boyhood. I definitely felt that going through these different moments. I had aspirations to be an artist, but I grew up next to Cal Arts, where I had to deal with a lot of college student artists, which turned me off the whole thing. And I decided to become more practical. So maybe that's why I don't have the same love that you did, Stuart, for this film. But I think this is, you know, would I ever watch this again? Maybe. But would I recommend it? Yeah, I, I would recommend someone check it out. They might have a reaction like, Stuart, it sounds like you had, where they really get into this film. I think it's a neat gimmick. I think there are some great moments, and I think it's worth checking out and seeing if it speaks to you. So it's a mild recommend for me. Stuart. Yeah, this is one of those podcasts where it's just tough. I think we've all had it, where like you really love a movie, and every time one of the other hosts says something negative, you're just like, it is like you're punching my child. You're just punching the shit. <laughs> out of my inner child. I love everything about this movie. I think it is fantastic. I think that it has so many things to say in a subtle way. And we should get more subtle movies. I mean, maybe it's too subtle. I get that, yes, once we get past the first husband's dramatic, drunken abuse and her escaping, the stakes seem to decrease. But my interest does not. I remain fascinated by watching life pass by. I mean, people make the joke that it's as interesting as watching paint dry. 
I would rephrase it. They've actually made watching paint dry really interesting. And I think there's a lot to observe and learn here. I think there is more story here than it gets credit. And I think that if you're interested and captivated by what you watch, repeat viewings will open it up for you. I have seen this movie twice. I know I will watch it again. I do think it is one of Linkletter's best films. High recommend. I had to struggle with which way to go on this because this movie does have great moments. Not just good, great moments. But there are just too many moments that are just everyday life. And I'm not going to cheer a film because, look, they caught day-to-day life on camera. Everybody catches day-to-day life on camera every single day. It's called YouTube. So where does it rank, though, in a binary system? Do the great moments outweigh the tedium that is the last 90, 100 minutes? And I'm going to have to give it a week not recommend. I just don't think that the enjoyment here as a movie, as a fictional film, is enough to outweigh the latter two-thirds of the film that do feel as aimless and wandering as any teenager. And if that's what he's trying to capture, great, it was not an enjoyable movie-watching experience. I love the making of the story. I love that they made this movie. I love that they'd spent 12 years, 13 counting marketing and release, on this movie. I applaud them to the heavens for making it. I will never watch it again. <laughs> but all that said, I may never rewatch the movie. I will re-listen to the soundtrack again and again. It has been in non-stop rotation in my car. Best movie soundtrack since Garden State? Well, it's a compilation. I, I want to point out, these are all songs I was mostly familiar with and had at the time when they came out, but it's a nice photo album. It's a great keepsake for this last decade. There are a lot of songs on there that actually, they're not my favorite thing about the soundtrack, is songs that I did know from before, Gnarls Barkley Crazy and Band on the Rung by Paul McCartney, and that Gautier song, Somebody That I Used to Know, that's actually the low points, but that song Hero by Family of the Year, it's our opening credits here, I didn't know that one. The songs that I didn't know, that all kind of have that, there is Coldplay on here, but they all have that kind of Coldplay vibe to them, and then a mixture of some hits over the past 12 years. Yeah, really, really like the soundtrack. The best thing for me to come out of this movie is the soundtrack well it sounds like both of you are a little lukewarm here uh, it's worth asking though would you guys be up for manhood is there something to be learned by following him through college or into his first job or the problem is it's difficult to say where you would stop i mean boyhood makes sense every year we follow the 12 years of the american educational system and so even if it doesn't feel like the story reaches a clear conclusion, there is a finality to it. He, he could ditch art school and become a doctor. That's another 12 years, isn't it? <laughs> there you go. Med school. And then 12 more years just paying off the loans. Yeah. There you go. That definitely would... It would be a long one. Let me put it that way. I don't know. I feel like it's done. Because they left it in such a way where you see that he could become his own individual and follow his artistic passion, or he could get pregnant too early and get trapped in a relationship before he's ready and be his parents again, I think that is the statement. I don't think I need more years of that. I think 
Well, I guess I feel like I did when Before Sunrise came out. Don't do any more because you might screw up the way I feel about it. My big fear is that they're doing this in secret. I mean, the fact that when even Before Midnight came out, Ethan Hawke is going out there on interviews and saying, no movie is made like this, when in fact he knows there's another movie made like this. There's no reason why they couldn't be making a sequel for the next 12 years in secret and come out with it. I personally just wasn't into these fictional characters enough to want to see this story continue. I'd love to see Richard Linkletter make another multi-year film about aging. Something like he did with the Before Trilogy, where you could follow adults from college through their 30s or something. But maybe it's parenthood, where you start where they have a child and end where that child goes to college. I don't want Mason back. I really don't. Yeah, that seems to be the make or break it. And again, I feel like Mason's story is told. He's at a precipice. I don't necessarily need to see which direction he goes. I've seen both paths. And so I think we're all in agreement. It's a neat experiment. I definitely feel like everyone should sample it just on the basis of, it's like watching the Truman Show. Come on, when are you going to have an opportunity to watch life evolve in such a way? I thought the Truman Show would be boring for that audience too. You know, I always wondered, why do people want to watch Truman walk down the street? <laughs> All right. Well, let's finish up here with by doing something I really don't like doing that much, but Oscars, who can say? I know that it's considered a front runner because of its unique qualities. I think because of the things you've cited, because of its sheer originality and the impracticality of putting a project like this together, I think it puts it as a front runner. I'll say this much. Linkletter is going to win director. There's nobody that can beat him. And he deserves it just for the effort. I really do believe that. Yes. He hasn't won before. He's made many great films. And the perseverance and the unique way in which he structured this, he's going to win. Everything else, all bets are off. I wouldn't be sure that it'll win anything else except maybe Patricia Arquette because she has no competition. Usually, picture and director go hand in hand. I think this could win. I Again, you have helped explain to me why the other critics and the Hollywood Academy voters... Pretentious types? Snooty? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why they like it. Douchey? Would we use the douchebag artistic douchery? Oh, God, I hate to use that about the guy who made Before Sunrise and Dazed and Confused, but <laughs> What maybe? about me? You're making it about me. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I've already used that publicly about you in previous shows. Yeah, you have. All right. I'll accept the label. I am an artistic douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> and proud of it too <laughs> i am but yeah i think that people up their own asses will vote for this and it'll win <laughs> okay well we've got a little project i think we could bring up that's going to take a little time to evolve and uh it's not a podcast no but it is 100 more movie reviews from us oh man i'm gonna be talking some more not quite but this is a pretty big announcement. I hope you're still with us for this, because this is the first time we're going to make this public. We're going to be talking about it on our live show one week from the release of this show. On February 17th, we're doing a live review of Kingsman. That is also the day we're launching our first Kickstarter to take a transition 
an evolutionary step for us as we transition from podcasters to hopefully published critics. That's right. We're writing a book. I mean, if I'm an artistic douchebag, who am I without a book to hold up? <laughs> self-publish. But in order to even self-publish, it takes money. I was surprised when Arnie, you did the research on this. There is a lot of expense these days to put out a flesh and blood book or even an ebook. And so we're going to need help if we can give you guys a book of our reviews. Yes, Marjorie is joining Stuart, Jacob, and I. We are each going to review 25 movies, but this is certainly following the now playing formula where three hosts will review a movie. One person will review a movie and give the base review, and then two other hosts of the show will give their brief counterparts, which may be in agreement, maybe three recommends, it may be two not recommends. But here's the big key about this book. Every movie in this book, we recommend. Or somebody. Yeah, it should be said, the person presenting the movie will be recommending it, but there'll be other opportunities for people to chime in and say what they think. Yes, absolutely. The title of the book is simply Underrated Films We Recommend. These are going to be the ones you may not have heard of, but have people who you know in them, or films you've heard horrible things about, we think that needs to be revisited. It's not going to be the critically lauded blockbuster films, it's going to be the films that may have slipped under your radar or been pushed down your priority list. We're going to find 100 of them, or more if we make our stretch goals, because like Stuart said, my jaw hit the floor when I found out how much it was going to cost to actually print a physical book. And so we decided we couldn't even make that a base goal. A physical book would have to be a stretch goal. Again, like our donation drives, don't think that we're going to be sitting around and rolling in money like Woody Harrelson in Indecent Proposal. This is literally going to lawyers who have to give us clearances, to editors who have to make sure we sound good on paper as we do on a mic, to artists because we're going to make this visually appealing and have original art in this book as well, to printers, to Kickstarter fees. So we hope that you enjoy what we're doing here enough to help us take that next step. And you can now not only have now playing in your ears, you can have now playing on your bookshelf. Yeah, it's been a dream of mine. Yeah, these aren't my favorite movies, but just an opportunity with all these movies I've seen that I never felt like they got their day in court or they got a bad rap. Yeah, what a wonderful thing to be able to bring to our audience. There's too many of them for us to ever record all these as shows. Book is the perfect way to deliver this to you. We're hoping you can support us and help us get this, yeah, if not in physical form, at least as an ebook. And all of these goals that we have for this project are going to be detailed, outlined. They're going to be on our website and on our Kickstarter page. Absolutely. And of course, it, with any Kickstarter, there are rewards. And this is a chance for several of you to put your money literally where your mouth is because we're offering as rewards all of our vaulted podcasts. You can choose a series. You can choose the whole catalog. You can choose to pledge an amount that will get you not only our whole back catalog, but every future donation podcast we ever do. And it's all to help fund 
this book, and you can even host an episode of Now Playing. That's a Kickstarter reward as well. You could tell us what movies to review. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities to kind of screw with our lives. So even if <laughs> you know, you're know you not interested in getting the book, there's a lot of examples in, in doing social experiments. And I think anybody with a little bit of extra cash and some bright ideas could have fun with this. Yeah, so the Kickstarter is going to launch on February 17th and run 30 days, so it ends March March 19th, February only has 28 days this year, and we are hoping you, the listener, will help push us to the next level with Now Playing Podcast. We've been on the mic for years. We really would love to see this show continue to grow, and if we hit our second stretch goal, we may even get to meet you in person because, yes, part of the goal of this book would be to get it in the hands of new readers and new listeners, and that means we would actually do a little book tour if we hit our second stretch goal where we would be across the country in five different cities, all four corners and the middle, and you could meet us if you're in the States. It would be great fun. I mean, we've been wanting to do that anyway. We tried with Comic-Con one year, but I don't think we didn't have the same listener base that, that we did before. But yes, it would be great fun to go on the road and open this up. This is real opportunity for us to take what we do every week to a new exciting level. And yeah, I mean, some of these are pie in the sky goals, but you got to think big and we're hoping you think big with us. So that starts on the 17th. If you're listening to the show, honestly, you won't be able to escape it. We're going to push this as hard as we can because we got 30 days to make or break. It's go time. We hope you support us right out of the gate. February 17th, come to our live show. Pledge on our Kickstarter during our live show. We would love to see that number go up during the live show. I think we can actually correlate the energy of that show versus what we're <laughs> seeing live. <laughs> yep, I agree. I'm really excited about the live show anyway, but this will be just a extra level of suspense as we watch that parameter go up or down. So thank you for all the support you've given us. We hope that you will join us and find out through the pledges what 100 or more movies we recommend. And with that, we'll sign off on Richard Linkletter Films and go to some movies that I know at least some of which won't get recommends. Or win Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> the Fast and the Furious series. Yes, I've been dreaming about this. You mean having nightmares? No, this is really like when we talk about my childhood, I really relate to Vin Diesel souping up <laughs> Honda Civics and stealing TVs and VCRs for cash. It's my life. It's my boyhood. The stories we could tell from our teenage years, Stuart. I mean, I remember drag racing down Warson Road. <laughs> yes, it's true. That Batmobile Hot Wheels was just pimped out. <laughs> <laughs> so we will be back one week from now live with the review of Kingsman. We're giving away on that show vaulted podcasts as well and one of our last remaining DVD ROM sets. So you have to be there live to win. That review will be on the feed a couple days after that. So if you're used to downloading on Tuesday night, there will be nothing to download Tuesday night. You got to come live. It'll be there Thursday or Friday. It's going to be edited, too. So if you want the raw feed, yeah, be there live. The bloopers. This is the blooper show. <laughs> Hear us clearing our throats and saying um and telling each other to repeat our lines that we slurred. Plus more you knows and I don't knows <laughs> than you can count. <laughs> 
make that a drinking game, you'll be sloshed and then you'll donate on the Kickstarter and you'll find yourself with us saying, you know, and I don't know. So that's one week from tonight, two weeks from tonight, we go fast, we go furious to the Fast and the Furious retrospective series. We will talk to you live in next week. And until then, Apple quit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. That was a fun day, right? Yeah, it was. Sorry. What? That Mason had to be there, you know? <laughs> Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. So, what are you going to be doing tomorrow? Same thing, right? Yeah. Okay. And also, join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com at 9.30 Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, February 17th for our live review of Kingsman, The Secret Service. There's no, like, real magic in the world, right? Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including The Aviator, Gangs of New York, The Social Network, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Steel, and more. You think they ever will make another Star Wars? I don't know. I mean, I think if they were to make another one, the, the period where this game is set is where it would have to be. Because there's nothing after, really. Yeah. No, Return of the Jedi, it's end. over. There's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing else to do there. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. I don't know, I'm not counting on it being some big transformative experience. I don't think it's that transformative. I just see it as the next step. See exclusive videos and interviews on the Now Playing Podcast YouTube channel. You can find the link on our homepage. You're looking at things in a really unique way. Got a lot of natural talent. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. Life is expensive, you know. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Well, they don't hear it, you know. It goes in one ear and out the other. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. I just feel like there are so many things that I could be doing and probably want to be doing that I'm just not. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. You have so many lines, Everything's aligned. Now Playing is not affiliated with IFC Films. Boyhood is the property of its copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You know how everyone's always saying, seize the moment? I'm kind of thinking it's the other way around. You know, like, the moment seizes us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I mean, I guess it's just being afraid of what people would think, you know, judgment. Yeah, I guess it's really easy to say, like, I don't care what anyone else thinks, but everyone does, you know, exactly. deep down. <laughs> 
Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Don't look back. It's gonna be okay. I'm leaving all my friends and I didn't even get to say goodbye. Every listener out there remembers when that happened to them. I dare say we don't have any listeners that are younger than 18. Uh, unfortunately, we do. They keep trying to friend me on Facebook. Oh, no. Then I feel <laughs> so guilty right now. I am going to watch my potty mouth. I'm going to put it in the square jar. What, was it 50 cents? <laughs> it depends on the word you use. <laughs> they just love our human centipede review. <sighs> feel so guilty. <laughs> But we also follow his slightly older sister Samantha, Lorelai Linkletter, the daughter's do the Lorelai Linkletter, the Lorelai Linkletter, the director's daughter. I think that was a medium haircut, but uh, difficult to say. I never really watched Medium. I didn't like the show, but that may have been just because. Oh, you're talking about the TV show, not the length of her hair. No, it was a short haircut that she did <laughs> for Medium. Okay, got it. Yep, what he said. I mean, he does not feel socially integrated with other people. There's girls that like him. They come up, they hit him. They come hit him. They come <laughs> up and hit on him. And, and of course, the goatee song, somebody that I used to know. Goatee. And that goatee, I, I always think it's goatee, you know, that big anus oh, on the yes. internet. That's what I always think of when I hear that, yeah, their name. <laughs> I don't know what that is, and I don't want to. Oh, don't Google it, man. Google Goatsey, G-O-A-T-S-E. Uh, don't, don't. <laughs> oh, it's so disturbing.